Last week, I told you that I love stories. And I pointed out that I believe most people love stories. And we started a study of one of the most interesting stories in the Bible, the book of Esther, last week. It is a story that deals with God's providence. Providence is how God works things out in life, I'd say through history. The book of Esther is a literary dream for us who like reading, writing, who love stories. It is, I believe, a book put together with great artistry. It is a book that God is not mentioned in at one time, but you very much know that God is working throughout every chapter. We are doing background material on the book of Esther over the next few weeks, last week, this week, and the weeks to come, because I want us to really grasp as much as we can from this incredible book. This is a book that I believe shows you about God's providence. It is a book that shows you that I believe there is no such thing as luck, there is no such thing as coincidence, and there is no such thing as chance. The world goes on luck, coincidence, chance, but as believers, we know different. Last week, I told the story of Bella and Maria Paskin. If you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to the podcast. Go on to the uh, video on the YouTube where I told this story of an incredible act, I believe, of God's sovereignty of the way he brought a couple together after World War II. And I believe that in that story, it wasn't just chance that they were able to meet up. And it's a fascinating story, and I would encourage you to go and listen to it. Just like the book of Esther tells a story that I think has no chance in it at all. This week, one of our members over here in the third row who's sitting down, Deborah, posted on her Facebook account something that I absolutely love, Deborah. It was a statement that went out to all her friends and hopefully to the world to see that you wrote, for those who don't know, and there was a series of worldly doctrines that this is the way they think the world works. For those who don't know, there's karma. That's not of God. For those who don't know, praying to the universe, that's not of God. For those who put out, I'm feeling someone's energy, that's not of God. Having positive vibes being offered up for someone, it's not of God. Wishing someone good luck, not of God. Mother nature, not of God. God is involved in our life. And I want us to understand in the day and age we live, God is not appearing to believers. He's not popping into your bathroom in the morning. He's not whispering, okay? We know that God isn't giving audible voices today. God is not doing things in a way that he's like on the forefront. But for believers in Jesus Christ, it is very clear that God is active and alive and I am hoping that every one of you could personalize it and say, I know that God is active in my life. 
And I think that's part of the genius of this book. Today I have got another story for you. It's about a little boy named Zeke and his sister, Anya. And I think there's a lot in it you can relate to. Has anyone been to Oregon lately? Here you go. This story takes place. Let me get it here going. Um, I'm on. No, I'm not. There we go. This story, this is a picture of Salem, Oregon, not where you guys were, the Phillips were. Has anyone ever dealt with dealing with Bible memorization groups before? Has anyone dealt with working with kids and giving music lessons or, or taking music lessons? This is a true story that brings all of those elements together. It's a true story happened about 30, 40 years ago. It was written by a woman named Doris Sanford. Like I said, it takes place in Salem, Oregon. And it's a story that appears, I believe, that shows God's hand behind the scenes. But I want to tell you, I'm going to bring a twist in here. Listen carefully. It was a late March afternoon, and Anya sat in a car memorizing Bible verses. Now, remember, Anya is about nine years old. She did it every week while her little brother, Zeke, who I think is about seven, had his piano lesson. Her turn would come next, but memorizing meant repeating the verses out loud, and that worked best in the car. She was part of a junior high Bible quiz team, and that required knowing a part of one of the books of the Bible very well. No problem. Anya loved competition. Their music teacher lived in a two-story house, and the piano was upstairs. Just before the lesson began, Zeke told his mom, I want Sissy to listen to my lesson. Now, the mom reminded him that Anya needed the study time, and besides, she had been listening to him practice his piano all week at home. But Zeke was determined. He went down to the car, and to mom's surprise, returned with his big sister in tow. The lesson began. Five minutes later, the lesson was abruptly halted by a loud noise outside. Everyone stopped to watch a late model car speeding away. The lesson resumed after the teacher reassured them that it was probably the car's backfire that they had heard. Zeke's hands were barely on the piano when the teacher's husband rushed in. A gunshot! A gunshot in the car. shattered the passenger side window in the front seat. The lesson was over. They hurried downstairs to look. Sure enough, there was a bullet lodged in the back rest just where Anya's head had been five minutes earlier. They all knew immediately God had used seven-year-old Zach to save his sister. It was a profound moment. Zeke had responded when it hadn't made sense to him or to anyone else, and Anya had complied with his illogical request. The two snipers who were driving through the streets of Salem, Oregon, randomly shooting at mailboxes, cars, and houses were arrested and held on $1 million bail, $1 million bail. 
the district attorney asked Anya and Zeke to come to court and tell their story. And the young men were sent to prison for five years, but not without hearing how God had protected a seven-year-old and his big sister. Now, the world looks at that as coincidence. The world looks at that as chance. But we know it's not. And I want us to think about the fact and the reality that this little boy who had countless lessons had never gone down before and said, I want my sister to watch. But that day, five minutes before a sniper would have killed his sister, he decides for some reason, some unbeknownst reason, to get his sister out of that car. Here's a couple points. Number one, grace was given. Because I can tell you story after story after story, true story, like the little boy in my neighborhood. When I say little boy, I say 19-year-old boy who went out with his girlfriend to Walgreens two years ago just to get something at the drugstore. And a lady driving 90 miles down the road, 90 miles on Indianapolis Boulevard, basically causes an accident. 15 seconds before, if he decides to leave Walgreens, 15 seconds later, he's not dead. My point in all of this is little Anya got grace. Sometimes other boys and little girls don't get grace. There is no way we know exactly how Zeke knew, but he did. And I don't know what God used to motivate him. Many times people claim, God told me this, and God moved me this, and then it doesn't come true. I get that. I watch it all the time. But I do know God moves, and I don't want to discount the fact that God moves people. But what is the twist in this story that you might have missed? The twist that I want you to understand that is so easy to miss in a story like this is that those sniper boys were evil. And little Anya sitting in a car would never have thought that evil was coming after her. Mom and dad would never have thought that day evil was coming for them. And what I want to talk about is when we look at the book of Esther and we look at the stories of Esther and we look at the things that are going on in life, evil is aggressive. And what I fear is so often And I believe it's very evident that you keep forgetting, and I can forget as well, that we do not live in a morally neutral world. We live in a world that is aggressive after you. It is coming for your children. It is coming for you. You could never let your guard down. How do I know that this is something that isn't something on the burner, uh, front burner of your mind, is so often we get up and we leave the house without praying. We leave the house without listening to the word of God, reading the word of God. Evil is out there. Look at Esther chapter one. And we said in verse one, it says, now what took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in the citadel of Susa. 
We said this is a true story. Susa is in ruins today. It is in modern-day Iran. This story will take place maybe around 483 to 480 B.C. We know this from historical archaeological records. And one of the things we emphasized over and over and over is that this story is true. And as I keep repeating, as this author who we don't know who wrote the book of Esther writes this story... He never mentions God once. And yet God is very much active in this story. It is a story that is with a title, Esther. Only two books in the Bible have a woman named um, as the title of the book, Esther and the book of Ruth. This is a book that tells a wonderful story of how a girl becomes like a modern-day, a real-life Cinderella, saves the people. If you're unfamiliar with the story, it's basically how we see, we see the first Adolf Hitler, a man named Haman. He's the evil arch enemy in this who decided that he was going to wipe out the Jews before Adolf Hitler did. This is a true story that drives the Jewish holiday of Purim. And what I stated last week, and I, and I asked you to do this. I don't know if anybody did it. But I said to you, if you go on Google and you said, for those of you who have internet access, is the book of Esther a true story? You would have seen the preponderance of evidence out there where people, the response on Google would have been, absolutely not. This is just a made-up story to justify the rabbi's view of how we can have this holiday called Purim. And yet, that totally undermines the veracity. Veracity being a word that expresses the truth of, of the Bible. We cannot ever hold to that because ultimately, if you start picking and choosing what's true and what's not true, then you begin to pick and choose what you're going to apply and what you're not going to apply. And it's really telling right now as I am being made more and more aware of Bible teachers, pastors, seminaries that are just jumping on the bandwagon, that are just abandoning Scripture. So we come to this story, and we're studying the book of Esther, and what we're going to be looking at is key principles throughout to do a preview so that you have a good feel for this. And the very first one we talked about last week was how the Bible is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible. And we talked about this is rooted in history. And as I stated, when we have teacher after teacher saying the book of Genesis is just a made-up story, it's all because people, I believe, ultimately do not want to be accountable to God. And they can justify their actions if this is just a myth, a story. And I want to hold to you, there is never, ever anything in this Bible that is just a made-up story. If God says Adam and Eve lived, Adam and Eve lived. And if God says there was a Queen Esther, or there was a Queen Vashti, like I told you last week, history hasn't been able to find the name Vashti yet. But I believe if God wills it, we will find it. So I talked last week and we went into depth on why this is a true story rooted in history. But then we started talking about how God is sovereign, how God is never seen in this book. 
and his providence is how he's working things out. And we went through a whole series of verses, and I hope you took notes on those, and I hope you went back and you looked at passages like Romans 8 that talks about that all things work together for good. That is a reality that God is working in your life. God is there, but God at the same time does realize that sometimes you ignore him and allows bad things to happen. God is sovereign in history. Well, where are we going today? Well, in the story of little Zeke and Anya, I wanted to focus on something that's running through the book of Esther, and that is evil. Evil is more than sin. In evil, I want to talk about something that comes more, comes from the devil, but is also something that there are people who are evil. And, and, and we're going to lock, look at under the understanding of wickedness and, 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 and crookedness and the, all the things that are dealing with this concept of evil. Last year, I gave our congregation, and I emailed this out to you, two papers that a friend of mine, Army Chaplain Bob Bema, gave on evil. And I gave that so that you would be warned. And I hope that you read those. If you need them again, I'll send them again. But some of the material I've pulled for this sermon, I pulled from his material. I think that we need to understand how evil operates. And I think as we get into this study, you're going to see how evil, just like God is not mentioned, and the devil is not, me- is not mentioned in this book. What I want to show you is something very interesting. So here's the story of Esther being played out. At least we'll look through the first half. Go to verse 12. We have this king, Ahasuerus. Some of your Bibles might have his name, Xerxes. And as the story plays out in verse 12, as he's thrown this giant party and series of parties, he wants his wife, the queen, to come and parade before him. And his guest, his male guest. Some people believe that he wanted this to be done in a very inappropriate way, perhaps her naked, and she won't do it. We don't know specifically, but that is what many Jewish writers say happened. But look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. You see... My focus isn't on the fact that the queen wouldn't come yet. My focus is on the wrath. Wrath in the Bible over and over and over is dealt with in regards to being evil. When you become wrathful, you become irrational. Ask yourself, Are you a wrathful husband? Are you an angry husband? Are you an angry wife? What kind of home do you have? Verse 16 to 18, as the story goes forward, in the presence of the king and the princes, Memucan, and I believe God gave us these names so that we would one day be able to verify this, or maybe even when it was written, the people would know that this person was still there, maybe still alive, Memucan is one of the advisors to the king, said, Queen Vashti has arranged not only 
the king, not, not has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the, the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in this presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. You know what the Bible talks about over and over? You have bad company. You have bad counselors. You have bad around you. This man takes something that's true. Should the wife have ever refused her husband? Well, yes and no. Because there's a sense where maybe he should have not gotten angry, gone to her and asked her, why did you want to come? But now he's got an advisor who is going to basically say, ban Queen Vashti. Get rid of her. And, 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 and he begins to give this reasoning of this macho kind of husband that, oh my goodness, if you do this, then all the wives will become like this. Come on. You've got to understand, this is the way evil works. It gets people worked up, gets people going, not thinking through rationally. The king should have just said, are you nuts? We're having one party here. We don't live in a day of social media, he should have said. You're not going to be able to see this, what the queen did. And I can come back with something maybe more, you know, if, if I have to penalize, I can penalize it. But now, we're, now we have an incredible unrest in all the homes and all the kingdom. Come on. But evil counselors bring you down. Think about who your friends are. Go down to verse 19. As he continues, he says, if it pleases the king, let a royal edict be, be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of the Persians and media so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. As we're going to play this story out, one of the most interesting things is, is that we have found historically, and this is supposed to be true, well, it is true, that the Persians had a government that had this stupid, evil law. And I don't know who in the world came up with it, and I don't know the history of it, but basically it was if you are even the king and you pass an edict, it cannot be reversed. Well, that's foolish. Making decisions that don't allow reconsideration, reflection for someone to change, that is a government that's evil. Somebody came up with this and said, ha, ha, I'm going to be able to get somebody to do something just like this, irrational, out of anger. I've had people get in my face and they've gotten so angry and then they, they say something. And they wish they could take it back. And sometimes they do. But this is, oh no, we have this law and it could never be reversed. That's evil. Keep on going. Then, what's going to be key is in our story, Queen, the woman who will become Queen Esther, we watch the story play out as her uncle will put her into position to become the queen. And key in the story is her uncle, who's named Mordecai. There's an event that it takes place, and it is recorded at the end of chapter 2. 
That is when Mordecai, the Jewish uncle of Esther, finds out that there is a plot to kill the king. So we pick up in verse 21 of chapter 2. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthan and Teresh, again, two names that I believe are recorded so that people know the specifics of the historical accuracy of this. Even if we don't have it then, maybe they knew it then. Two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows, and it is written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. Do you know that Proverbs talks about the fact that trying to overthrow a government is evil? And so evil was playing part of people trying to overthrow the government. Then there is evil that really comes to the forefront as the story plays out. This man, Haman, who is an official in the king, king's court, basically wants to keep promoting himself. And as we come to chapter 3, okay, we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. And after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes, over all the princes who were with him. Pick up in verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai who were throughout the whole kingdom of Hazuerus. Now you talk about something. You talk about going off on a rage. You talk about dealing with evil. Haman is someone that gets this position. He wants people to bow down to him because he is this royal officer. And when he sees this one man who is playing out his idea that I'm not going to have any other idols, I'm going to just honor God, he decides not only am I going to kill Mordecai, but I'm going to kill every Jew. Think about that. That is incredible evil. Evil is at play there. And we're going to talk in the future about the story, about how there's a little history there. Carl had sent me a good reminder of the fact that the Agagites back from the Exodus were people who were so evil and bent against the Jews. Remember, the Jews were supposed to wipe them out. And even King Saul was supposed to do that. But they failed. And here now, because God's commands weren't kept, this man is put into a position where he is going to try to have every Jew killed. We'll pick up in verse 9 now as the story goes out. Here, I, I don't want you to ever miss this. This is evil working. Because Haman comes to the king and he says, if it is pleasing to the king, this is verse 9 of chapter 3, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry out the king's business to, <laughs> to put uh, into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamanite the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also. 
do with them as you please. Well, what is often missed is, you talk about an idiot king, an evil king. He should have looked and said, are you nuts? We're going to kill all these people? But that is just out-out evil, the way that they're operating. And what is often also missed is the very fact that money is offered to these people and that they're willing to accept it. Now, ask ask yourself honestly, if I said to you, would you kill somebody for $5 today? You'd say to me, I'm not going to kill anybody for $5. Would would you kill someone for a million dollars? It doesn't matter if it's $5 or a million dollars. I'm not killing somebody. Killing someone's evil. We're talking not, we're talking killing, murder. So you've got an entire culture that they know is willing to accept this. Then there is Haman's pride that really gets on the forefront. As the story plays out, we jump to chapter 5, and Haman is now invited with the king to Esther's party. Esther realizes she must stand up for the Jews, and she's going to do it in a very discerning way. We'll talk about that in the future, but she wants to have Haman and the king come to a banquet. And Haman realizes that he is the only one beside the king invited to this banquet. So we pick up as he comes into his home in chapter 5, verse 9. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart because he's the one coming to the banquet. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Now remember, Mordecai is not bowing because he believes the Old Testament truth. We believe that you, you have no other idol. You don't have to have any idols. You're going to honor God. So verse 10, Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zedares. Verse 11, and Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he promoted him above the princes and the servants of the king. And you can write in, he's basically saying, I am great. And don't you all see it? Look at, I am great. And you talk about the very essence of what we see in the exaltation of Satan from the Old Testament. I think in Isaiah like 14, the, the five great I wills. I am great. And Haman, verse 12, also said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which he has prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all the friends said to him, Have a gallows 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman. And so he had the gallows made. Well, the story's going to play out that the king's going to be interrupted in the middle of the night just by accident, right? No accident. God's going to work that out so that he's not hanged in the morning. But the very fact that, listen, his pride takes over, and that's evil. His friend's advice is evil. Evil is throughout this book. And as my friend Bob, the army chaplain, said, Sin is typically defined as any action or thought that violates God's will or commandments. 
leading to a separation or estrangement from God. So I lie, that's a sin, all right? But there's more when you talk about evil. Evil is more like a force. It's more like the entire effort. And, and I want you to begin to understand that when we look at sin, sin can be both intentional and unintentional. I think that's one of the best studies that you could ever do in the Old Testament. Intentional sins, unintentional sins, how there were different sacrifices for them. But I digress. Evil, on the other hand, is often seen as a broader concept that encompasses not just evil actions, but the existence of a pervasive force or entity that opposes God and seeks to corrupt or destroy what is good. Evil is often associated with Satan and the devil who's believed to have rebelled against God and seeks to lead humanity away from God. While sin can be seen as the result of human frailty or weakness, evil is often seen as a more active and, and malevolent force that seeks to do harm. However, both sin and evil are understood to have serious consequences for individuals in society. Both require repentance and forgiveness and redemption in order to be overcome. Evil always brings about negative results. Unless God is at work, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. It's fascinating, the Hebrew word for evil is a word ra. We see it at first with the tree of good and evil. We know that when Isaiah spoke about the coming of Jesus, he spoke and he said this in Isaiah 7, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows good enough to refuse what? Evil and choose good. Solid food is for the mature. And this is what I want to challenge all of you with. Why I want you to be regularly reading your Bible. Not jot this verse down, Hebrews 5, 5 verse 9. It says, solid food is for the mature. And this is where believers should be, mature, complete. But because of the pra- but who, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Not just good and what's sin and not sin, but what is evil. So here's some principles. This is what I want to do today. Just quickly go through this. I can send this to all of you if you want. Just let me know. But I want you to take these 10 principles. First of all, I want you to recognize evil is to be avoided. Psalm 1 talks about blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the, seat, in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. The idea is don't hang around evil. Practically, are you hanging around evil people? Are you spending your time, as Grant said, you know, 11 hours on a screen? Where are you going on the internet? Where are you coming home? What are you doing when you come home? Do you come home and say, I've had a long, hard day, and then you plop yourself in front of the TV for the next five, six hours watching nothing but shows that don't show a way to solve things? I mean, you can watch the most, you know, what you perceive to be the most generic TV show, but the reality of it is is they're not solving problems biblically. But more so, we fill our minds with evil and then wonder why we have a propensity for evil. Reject every kind of evil. Reject it. Reject it sexually, reject it in relationships, reject it in how you advance your career, reject it in the way you have fun, and challenge yourself. In Esther, King Ahasuerus has nothing but ungodly counselors around him. 
And you wonder why he ends up taking a course of action. Who are your friends? You know, if you have to go to work and you deal with evil people, okay, you say, well, I go to work and I deal with these evil people. Go with the mindset that you're going to witness to them. You elevate the crowd. You don't have to go to evil places. You don't have to spend time with evil people. And men and women, you don't spend time with somebody who's not your spouse. We saw when Vice President Pence said he wasn't going to spend time inappropriately with another woman, the world like rejected. And what an idiot, what a backward man he is. I wonder how many people would have the guts to come and say, because I did something like that, I ended up having an affair and it ruined my life. You read Proverbs and it talks about what happens to the person who has an affair, how it destroys their family, how it destroys their home. Second, evil is to be hated. This is a passage I don't know if my wife knows, my son knows, but every week, I pray this specific passage. Romans 12, verses 9 to 25, has 25 attributes that every believer should have. And number two is one that always sticks with me. Hate what is evil. Hate is a strong word, is a passionate word. It is something that when you make the idea, like, wait a second, I hate getting drunk. Some of you are like, oh, I continue to get drunk. Hate it. Hate it from the inside because you know it ruins your life. Hate being involved with immorality. Because when your spouse finds out that you had an affair and your children see you and what you've done to them, should we bring up all the people that have come and told me and they repent of this stuff? and What it's done? God says, hate it. Hate it. Hate being a liar. Hate evil. Fear the Lord, because you see what that verse says? Fear the Lord is to hate evil, because God isn't playing games. Fear it. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and pervasive speech. Hate it. Gossip, sexual immorality, sexy movies, evil movies. I think you need to go back and you need to watch, read Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7 is often talked about the fact of how people are are brought into a a, a sexual affair, but it's also dealing with the world, how the world pulls you in. So that's just a freebie. Evil is to be resisted. Put on the full armor of God. No. See, this is what I'm trying to get at. When we talk about putting on the armor of God and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the fact that you need to be remembering, we do not live in a morally neutral world. We do not live in a world that's going to sit there and say, oh, little Anya's in a car and we're just going to leave hers fine. Or so-and-so's just going to be doing their own thing. There are people, you have to understand, evil is always going to come after you. In this story of Esther, Haman tries to kill all the Jews. Haman gets defeated. Evil sits back and says, gee, we're never going to do that again. No. Evil says, we're going to wipe the, we're going to get this thing going again, and we're going to get Adolf Hitler doing it. 
And Adolf Hitler kills six million plus Jews. And then they kill Hitler. And you think, well, that's it. We're never going to do it again. We just studied the book of Revelation. And I went over and over and over how the Antichrist is going to kill two-thirds of every Jew. Evil never stops. You think that evil is never coming after you because you're just living a morally neutral life? You cannot live a morally neutral life. So put on the full armor of God. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Know God's ways and say, I'm going to do his ways. Sexual sin, relational sins, anything. But here's the kicker. Evil is to be repaid with good. Love your enemies. Do good to them. This is where you have to think ahead of time. When you have evil people and you think to yourself, well, I'm just going to punch them back. That's not what God wants. God wants you to bless them. That's in that Romans 12 passage as well. So you read this Luke passage, love your enemies, do good to them, and, and, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. The wicked are the evil. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. God allows the sun to shine on the good and the evil. Believers should pray in response to evil. And here, it's one of the things that we need to understand in our day and age when people aren't buying into the Bible. I've read so many people have said, you know, like this is just like a mistake in the, in, the, um, in the Lord's Prayer. But it's lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why is that there? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name. You say, okay, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I want to do your will. But why throw in this? Because God recognizes that the humble people will every day recognize evil's coming for you. Evil is coming. You're riding down the road and some jerk, which I've had to deal with, and, and it's, it's helped me so much to have the mindset. Somebody cuts me off, and boy, I just want to retaliate. But I keep it in my mind, no, you're not going to retaliate. You're you're, going to back off. You're not going to be somebody that that goes crazy and tries to run them now off the road, pull a gun on them. But it's more so because we recognize evil just doesn't deal with traffic. It deals with relationships. It deals with a mother-in-law that's absolutely vicious or a father that is absolutely vicious and mean and angry and, and never gives anybody any credence in his home. It deals with a spouse that has left the home and now undermines and lies about the mother to the children over and over and over. Evil is out there, people. We need to pray for these people. We also need to pray that they get stopped. And I'm going to jump over this one. Believers should trust God in the face of evil. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear what? No evil. And what this means is I'm going to be godly no matter what I face. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is a a great aspect of faith. That we are people who constantly remember that we need to be walking with God and watching our words and thinking that that God is with us and, and he knows what's going on in my life.
One of the ways you can identify evil people, because you say, well, I've got this person, and they, they say they're a Christian, but they're always using evil speech. Whatever, whoever would love life and see good must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. And I've seen this over and over and over, that, you, you know, there are people that just are vicious with their tongue. And this is why I try to tell people all the time, make sure sarcasm isn't in your home. You, you, sarcasm is a cheap, easy way for you just to get your cuts in instead of dealing with a godly way. Someone wants to come and prove to me that they can talk in a sarcastic way and make it a godly and edifying and encouraging way, show me, you'll be the first. And if you're someone who says, you know, this is my culture, this is the way our home is, no. Cut it out, stop it today. But also, I recognize there are people who love to gossip, they love to drop little secrets, they love like this or that, and they are using their tongue evilly. James warns us over and over and over about the tongue. Watch your tongue. It has an incredible power for evil. And this helps me identify. When I see someone that is a liar, it tells me where their heart is and that their heart needs changed. And you need to understand, evil people are liars. Evil hates the light. So the more that you're in the light, the more evil will have nothing to do with you. Everyone who does evil hates the light. You see that expression? Hates the light and will not come into the light for his deeds will be exposed. And this is where some of you realize, you know what? I, I have walked in the light and the sad reality is it's divided my family. Luke 12, Luke 14, husband against wife, wife against daughter, husband, father against son. Why? Because we have seen it. We know that when you're in the light, unbelievers don't want to be in the light, and they'll turn things. And one of the hardest things to deal with is the fact that the more you're in the light, the more your family is going to be divided. In Christianity, we talk about the church being a church family. This is why, honestly, we need one another. Because the reality of it is, is the world, including our families, don't like light. And everyone does, who does evil hates the light. You have to understand that evil is aggressive. It hates light. And it is not passive. So this week when we read the newspaper and we see so many evil things being promoted. And as I see meme after meme on, on Facebook that talks about that which is evil is now loved in our world. We must recognize that we are in a culture that has basically said we are no longer going to hide our love for evil. And because of that, don't fall asleep. I want you to be aggressive, praying for your children every day. If your children are in public school, I never advocate go public or go private or, or, or go you know, do homeschool. But I got to tell you, even if you send your kid, as I mentioned last week, to private school, the reality of it is, is we are in a day and age when evil is aggressively pushing lies in ways that are destroying children. And when you have a front page article, and I know how many of you read it this week, about uh, the, the editorial that took half of the front page and about three-fourths of page five or six 
about how LGBTQ kids are just going to be so harmed if they don't get all of their ways and all their rights and the schools just bend over backwards for them. And I thought to myself, this is just pure evil, the lies, the lies that are out there. We must recognize the more that we're in the light, the more it protects us. Evil deeds should be exposed, have nothing to do with the, with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And sometimes, you know, in love, you have to tell someone, look, I know that you're struggling with your sexuality. I know you're struggling with your homosexuality. I know you're struggling with your drinking. I know that you're struggling with anger. I know that you're struggling with lying. But this is a lie. This is wrong what you're doing. You, you, you're doing this to your spouse. You're doing this to your children. It is wrong. And, 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 and so at the same time, when we talk about being gracious to the evil people, at the same time, open rebuke is better than hidden love. Remember that proverb, open rebuke is better than hidden love. And we need to tell people lovingly, kindly, that listen, what you're doing is evil. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So listen, I, I, I can remember 20 years ago, no, 30 years ago, I'm a believer, and I had this guy living in my house his name was John. And I kept seeing things in his life, and, he, and, 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 and I thought, they're evil. And I just, you know, John, you're not, you're professing to be a believer, but you're not acting like a believer. And he gets in my face, and like, how dare you? Who are you to judge me? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm doing this in kindness, and I'm doing this in love. And, and, and finally, eventually, John moves out of my house. Because at this time, I had like three or four guys. We, were, we had a I had this home in Upper Arlington, Columbus, Ohio, and we were holding Bible studies out of this. And this guy said, oh, I'm going to come live with you. I'm going to believe her. But you live with someone, and, you, and this is where all husbands and wives know. You live with someone, you really see what is at the heart of who they are. And so I'm living with this guy, and John is very clearly doing evil. But when you throw the light on it, it's like, oh, no. And he turns it against you. And that's what evil people will do. Who are you to say this? Who are you to say that? And so I had to live with that humility until one day, 10 years later, I get this phone call from John. And he calls me up and he says, Mike, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, I remember you, sure. He said, Mike, I got saved. You were right. You were the only one who told me I was not living right. You were the only one who had the guts to tell me that you didn't think I was saved. You were the only one who told me. And he says, Mike, I've changed my life. And, and now I've, I'm this engineer. My life has totally changed. I've, I had this invention. I made millions of dollars. And I'm giving it all to the Lord. And my heart just sank. Thanking, thank God for his salvation. And I thank God that I had the guts to say that. Listen. Evil deeds should be exposed. You think you're telling, doing something, someone good by not saying something, it's wrong. Now, I can tell you personally, one of the things I struggle with is writing a rebuttal to that letter to the editor. That is something I struggle with, whether that is my job as a pastor in dealing with the community. And so right now, I'm holding off because I think to myself, for my exposure will deal with individuals. 
but we can pray for our community as well. Then lastly, we should pray against the deeds. Psalm 141 verse 5 is fascinating because it says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. So what that is is saying, it was when somebody rebukes me and somebody tells me I'm wrong, I'm going to accept it. And I think that's a godly woman, godly man's approach. My head will not refuse it. Yet my prayer is ever against the deeds of evildoers. And so I think that is where we need to be. And so pray. And this is why I ask you to pray and be people who are aggressively praying. I'll say it one more time. You do not live in a morally neutral world. Every day is a battle. Evil is as much at work as is God. Evil isn't mentioned in the book of Esther as a force. But I went through the story so you would say, oh my goodness, that's evil. That isn't just sin. That is evil at work. Evil looks to hurt, kill, and destroy. Our story of Anya and Zeke goes on daily around the world. It's an incredible story of God's providence. But what is missed often in the story is how evil was lurking. Those teenagers were evil. And every day, every day, teenagers and adults just like that who are evil are at work. I know God protects me. I'm thankful for God's protection. And every day I pray for the protection of my family. I pray for your protection as well. I want, I want God's protection. I want to realize and I want to know going out every day that things are happening not by coincidence, not by luck, not by chaos, but by God's sovereign hand. And I need God's sovereign hand over my life. And so the story of Esther is one that is very profound. It's an ingenious way to teach believers how God really operates. Some 2,500 years later, like I said, Adolf Hitler gets farther than Haman. Soon, a man named the Antichrist, who identifies as the Antichrist, is going to get even farther than Hitler and Haman ever did. Isn't that incredible? Learn from the scriptures. Evil never stops. And if you think today that you're in a morally neutral world, he's got you. Evil was aggressive. Anna was fortunate. We'll talk more about other tragedies in the future, but what I want you to do is to follow these principles. Be people who realize that evil has to be dealt with. Don't bury your head in the sand. And it starts with being a believer in Jesus Christ and then living it out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your truth, for the reality that in this world in which man decided to choose evil over good. That story in the Garden of Eden was not made up, but really did happen. That God, we are people that now, who have been redeemed, who have been forgiven through Jesus Christ, that we will be people who run into the light so that evil doesn't follow. Protect every individual, every family here. I pray, God, that we are people of the light. Amen.